you know when we talk and I stumble upon a subject where I think I don't know anything and then I continue for like five minutes or something, ten minutes, and enumerate all the things I know about the subject. Yeah. It has happened a couple of times. Observability and the other one, which I have forgotten, that's one of those subjects. Um, what's yeah. the term I've forgotten? Metrics, I think. Metrics, yes. So there, there's, I don't know, we're definitely not doing the DevOpsy thing right now. What's the DevOps thing? We should be talking about the three pillars of observability. Huh. What are those? And the three pillars of observability, if I can remember correctly, is logs, metrics, and traces? Huh. Maybe? I don't know. Is this something we should look up? I don't know. I I don't work I don't work with uh, pillars as a design pattern, I guess. Indeed. You're more into bricks. Stacking bricks. Yeah. Actually, actually I do like that. It's it feels foundational. Yeah, very less likely to tip over. Yeah, I'm I'm much into mud. I oh, like yeah. building things with slabs of mud, not slabs, but like Bunches. What's a, a unit of mud? <laughs> uh, well, if you're playing Settlers of Catan, it's a card. That's true. A card of mud. One card of mud. Very good. Yeah. Anywho, um, metrics, observability. I, w- I was going to have a monologue here. <laughs> it hasn't worked out very well. Yeah, go, go right ahead. <laughs> Don't let me stop you. So, at my first real job, we did observability by configuring Nagios. So when a service hit some threshold, it started sending SMSs maniacally. Uh, And this was usually at four in the morning or something. And uh, so I I woke up and started to, to troubleshoot and stuff. And then my boss expected me to show up at work at eight o'clock and it wasn't optimal. Uh, so that's some kind of observability. And I think we used Moonin for uh, uh, seeing all the pretty graphs and things. Uh, and the thing I learned from that is if you are going to run big batch jobs, don't do that at 2 in the morning. Do that at 8 in the morning. So they crash at 8.30. Because then you can avoid the stand-up. Because crash. And you get to sleep. Yeah. Um, it only took me 10 years or something to, to figure this out. So that's a part of observability, I guess. Or is it? Is it just alarms? I think that's monitoring. Got it. And I think monitoring is a kind of high-level observability thing where you're observing things about the system and sort of raising alarms if if something gets weird but observability can go many levels deep i guess okay so what signals were you looking at 
that point was it mostly like mostly cpu usage disk space ram or was it also response times i think it was all of those yeah uh we also and i think we had something that sent mail when some imports failed because they were important people were paying for those xml blobs yeah um so that's something, someone always ends up paying for the XML. Yeah. There ain't no such thing as a free XML. Damn straight. So the most I've worked with observability was when I was doing the the thing I've written a retrospective blog post series about. So the preschool system. That's when I've had the most observability systems in place and the most system to observe and for that one we set up so initially we didn't essentially had nothing and when we were doing the microservice architecture thing we also wanted to start to figure out where our bottlenecks were and get some good reporting on on when errors was were spiking and stuff so we started looking at like what do the cool kids do? What are startups doing? So we tried New Relic. Was it good? It was very good, honestly. Uh it's not perfect by any means. I would claim that the UI is a bit annoying and there there are sharp corners around if you really look for them with with some of the integrations and stuff but no it, it was as straightforward as you could reasonably expect to uh, to add new relic to your services they didn't have instrumentation for all of our special source um, microservice tooling but their libraries were easy enough to use to instrument our tooling so we could get sort of response times for our custom microservice calls did you did you spend a lot of time writing instrumentation? No, that was probably a few hours. And then it just worked. Uh, yeah. Nice. It, it wasn't as nice as their own instrumentation necessarily. There are some details we can get to at that point. Yeah. I I have no idea if that's improved since then. But this was for their APM product, so that's application performance monitoring. Yes. And then there was also just the agent you ran on each host that would tell you things about CPU usage, load, RAM, disk, that sort of thing. So this started allowing us to know things about, like, okay, how fast are our database queries on the application side? Ah. So how quickly do we resolve our queries? Uh, how quickly do we handle requests? What requests are slow? What requests are in what percentile? Yeah. What do the average lo averages look like? What do the what does the throughput look like? At what throughput did we have our last outage? Yeah. Uh, those graphs were incredibly useful, and we could also hook up alarms to whatever levels at, of these we wanted. So. So we could say that. Staying with 
outside of these bounds for five minutes means that something's wrong. Yeah. And that platform saved me a lot of headache figuring out not only when was the system having trouble so I could jump on and start fixing it before someone called me about it, but it could also help me when I was investigating. Like, I know this keeps crashing at lunchtime. And I think it's a performance issue where like, essentially everything is idle or we have plenty of sort of headroom performance-wise, but it's just breaking down at this certain point in time every day. Okay, I can see here that we have a request spike that's uh, that's fairly outsized to compared to the rest of the day. And this service starts to keel over at that point. Okay. Why does it start to kill over? Well, this request starts to take uh, two seconds instead of uh, 40 milliseconds. Ouch. Uh, okay, that's probably a problem. Why does it do that? And I could keep following the threads and even go fairly deep down, usually back to the database, but sometimes it was something else. And like, that was very useful. They also charge a ridiculous premium. <laughs> So they, they charged by host and we were doing microservices. <laughs> uh. Yeah. And I was like, could we have a different thing? Could we could we pay it on a different model? Because this gets stupid. You're punishing us for having several different servers. Not for sending too much data to you, but for having a certain number of services. Yep. Yeah. Maybe they don't like microservice architectures. I guess not. No, but that was probably my first real taste of being able to see some of the insides of your application and how it performs at runtime during operations and not actually having to set out to measure anything uh, in particular. Rather, we collect a bunch of information in an ongoing fashion. And when there's a problem, we can actually look at it and we can even detect when a problem is starting to build up and notify before it actually starts causing serious issues, ideally, depending on the kind of problem. Because there are so many things that can go wrong. And if you only look for things that have traditionally gone wrong, you're probably missing a bunch of errors or problems. Yep. So we had one thing where a big unoptimized query for statistics would just block everything else from completing for a few seconds. Because uh, we were running Python with gevent, which essentially makes it sort of a crappy Node.js. Yeah, so you can't have uh, blocking things because then everything blocks. Yeah, and it so this wasn't entirely blocking, I believe. It wasn't blocking for all of that time, I think. Because it, it was calling off to Elasticsearch uh, via HTTP. And I think those calls would yield. 
So it could be that when we were processing the data on our side that something was taking too long. I don't remember the exact problem because this was years ago, but there was an issue which caused a particular request to take several seconds instead of sort of a hundred millisecond or two. And it caused, suddenly started causing a cascade of other requests to start a timeout because they were not getting their responses from their services fast enough and uh, then we timed them out. And we would not have been able to see that why that issue occurred, but we would occasionally hear from people like, oh, things are slow now or things uh, aren't working right now. But if I was going to go into the system and look, things would have recovered every time but since i had historical graphs of what had been going on i could just see like oh this is a big ass spike and and then i could dig into it yeah so having that continuous sort of collection of of data is useful it's also super inconvenient for (laughs) for operational reasons sometimes so setting this up our first attempt I, was without New Relic, and we were trying to set up just storing a bunch of logs with Elasticsearch and Kibana, doing the log stash, shipping logs to something. And there were so many logs. So, so many logs. Did it work? Or did it just fall over? No, we, we, we just murdered. We tried to host it on a VPS, absolutely murdered yeah. it and removed it before we went to production. But so, so like tracking a whole bunch of time series data is it's doable, but it's pretty, it can get pretty tricky and uh, you very easily generate a lot of data. Yes. Have you done any sort of observability metrics or monitoring with anything you've done since? Uh, I think the one I'm, I'm, but that's also an alarm. The one I'm most happy with is just uh, Django's ability to send me an email when anything goes wrong. Yeah. Because it's, I don't always write the tests I need to write, even though I nowadays set out to do so. So just getting that mail is very useful. Uh, but that's not really the, the true stuff. Yeah, but I, I think monitoring is the absolute basis of what you need for for a sort of feeling safe and secure about running a system. Yeah. You, it has to start with it telling you if it's broken. Yeah, absolutely. And the hmm at the last place i worked they used gray log for they hosted all the logs in-house and used gray log to get some kind of interface to interact with everything but i never really i tried to learn gray log and tried to learn how to search for stuff but it i never really got there i don't know what's 
what's wrong with everything. Uh, and they also had some serious problems with the uh, gray log just not working and uh, throwing away logs. So Sounds fun. I guess, yeah, I guess they ran into the same problems that you did. Yeah. What would you use if you were setting up a production system today and wanted to have decent observability? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, none whatsoever, actually. Okay, interesting. Uh, I, I think it's, I would probably try Prometheus because it seems cool, but I don't know if that's the the correct way to go. Yeah, so Prometheus is definitely one of those things. So Prometheus does time series data, and yep. I think the focus is to do metrics. I think they have Loki, which is supposed to do logs. Okay. Um, so this is Grafana Labs that are producing different things. Yeah. So Prometheus and Grafana, if you match those up, you get one thing for st for storing time series data and one for showing them to you. And the way Prometheus does things is it pulls metrics at a certain interval, which produces uh, which produces data for you. So it doesn't really get like a whole honking list of your logs or events or whatever, but rather it pokes your system and like, give me those metrics, yo. And it does that at a certain interval. So it's a pull kind of configuration. Yep. And your system just needs to keep whatever, for example, running averages and that kind of thing. Or I don't know all of the details, but I did, I did sit down with uh, a buddy of mine from, from this podcast I do. Um, so Alex Kutmos has um, implemented a cool library for Elixir That's the, that does Prometheus and Grafana stuff. Okay. Promex. And he... So he set up that one to work with the telemetry that's already in... So there, there's a standard for telemetry that's been brought into the beam for Erlang and Elixir, where, where everyone can essentially do... provide introspectability in the, the same way or pro provide metrics provide some data in the same way so it gets very easy to hook up sort of to your database adapter or to your web framework and like yeah i want your i want the information about how things are going please send me those uh, uh, get me that data and then you can i there's a bunch of different solutions to shipping that to to many different types of systems so one is like if you if you're using datadog you can ship telemetry events to that uh, so datadog is probably one of the ones i would use if i wanted the most hands-off approach to to running just keeping data around and making sure i have introspectability and a bunch of logs and information to work with does Datadog do the same thing as Prometheus and uh, Grafana, or is it another? Not quite. 
uh, I believe the Loki stuff gets towards what Datadog does for logs. So I haven't used all of Datadog's systems. I've worked with a client that uses them for logging. Yep. And with those logs, they usually ship some metadata and metrics as well. Okay. So I, I don't know all of Datadog's offering, but I feel like they're... They certainly seem cheaper and uh, more, a little bit more modern than uh, New Relic. Hmm. Hmm. So, Datadog is certainly one I would would take a look at. But I would also consider using uh, something like Grafana and Prometheus and setting those up or paying for them because there's cloud yeah. hosty things for them. Oh, cool. The logging system is one of those things that I'm pretty happy to pay someone to host for me because the biggest part of that to me is just make sure I don't run out of disk space, disk space please. <laughs> yes, because if that happens, all <laughs> bets are off. Yeah. But then again, it also leads to things like, oh, crap, we, we suddenly added this logging in our rate limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but uh, I've had good experiences with it so far there. And I would want to try more Prometheus and Grafana because that library is actually pretty sweet. So, one thing he does with that is okay, you have a Phoenix application with Ecto and stuff. Okay. Enable the plugins for that. And he's prepared useful dashboards. Ooh. Because building your dashboard is a pain in the neck with any of these systems. Yep. Uh, except sort of the hosted ones, like Datadog will provide a bunch of dashboards and useful tooling for you. Then again, you probably also want to build a bunch of custom dashboards because, because of how you want to slice your data. Yes. So yeah, uh, just that how much you can get by default I feel it's very, very powerful there. But there's also a, an even less effort and even less uh, involved way of doing observability for for the beam. So one thing that came straight out of this telemetry work that people put in in the ecosystem was live dashboard. So that uses uh, Phoenix Live View to make a decently real-time way of making dashboards. And by default, like if you if you just install it, you get a bunch of information about how the runtime and how Phoenix is behaving and stuff. And you can uh, install some additional tooling to get operating system monitoring. So it checks the health of the host and space, CPU, RAM load good stuff but by default uh, live dashboard is uh, doesn't have history it just starts measuring when you start looking yep which is a pretty decent way of doing it until something goes boom there, there is support for keeping history around so you can implement a small storage uh, interface essentially a behavior and you, and then it can start keeping data using that. 
whatever that is, if it's writing to files, writing to Redis, or writing to Devnull, you, you don't get very much history if you write to Devnull, though. Nah. But something we did for a client recently, where we're going to be hosting things on-prem, and I just want to be able to see a little bit of history, we added a circular buffer, so a ring buffer nice for storage and uh, that's part of like the phoenix docs has that as an example which just means it'll keep a little bit of this in memory and when it has gone around the ring buffer it starts throwing away the older stuff yeah exactly so it just keeps writing in a circle essentially nice how how big is what's a reasonably sized ring buffer uh, is it one of those your mileage may I vary? think I think we set it to be like sixty entries. So that depends okay. on what you're measuring it at what interval, I guess. Yeah. So for web requests in a fairly inactive system, that might be quite a few. And for web requests yep. in a very active system, that will be nothing at all. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so <laughs> but for this case, this will be some of the cheapest effort someone has ever put in for the most bang for the buck like we can actually look at some graphs of why the system is behaving or misbehaving yeah it's absolutely ludicrous the amount of utility you can get with with essentially very little work yeah uh, it also sounds like something you could iterate upon if if needed and if it isn't needed well, very good that you didn't spend more time than you did. Yeah, yeah, and you like if you if you are logging all the things off to a separate service service, you probably don't need the live dashboard, but you might actually benefit from having it. Either way, yeah, as a first stop, it's a small local thing, and if you don't need it, you can always throw it out. It's not like you invest too much in it. And you can add custom views and add new pages and stuff if you like. I might actually be adding a view to to keep track of logs and backups there as well. Oh, yeah. Just so you can see a list. Like, yeah, we backed it up this recently. That's very good. Very useful. And I, I think this kind of this kind of observability tooling. So some systems definitely have have sort of the hooks ready to to plug this in i don't know what the situation is in for example java and .NET land but i imagine most of the most of the slightly more enterprisey uh, libraries and frameworks provide something for this there might even be some cool standards they can work with but i also know that for so the python library for New Relic was a hellscape of monkey patching. <laughs> it was it worked fine, but it made me nervous. <laughs> yeah. And why is it a hellscape of monkey patching? But it's like, yeah, because you need to hook into a library that does not necessarily expose this information by default. Or you yep. in their case, they were hooking into a whole bunch of different types of libraries and libraries. And for such a dynamic language, that's the way you can do it. 
it might not be a good way to do it, it but it might also be the only way to do it with sort of zero friction. Yep. And for functional language, that usually doesn't work. Monkey patching. Nah, it depends on the language. I suppose it could work in some of the more dynamic ones. Uh, I'll have to get back to you on that. And <laughs> I like that for the beam we have this telemetry. Like, it's not technically a standard. It's just a library that was published. And I guess the... I think it was work in the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation that sort of pushed this as part of their observability working group and just made sure there was buy-in from all the relevant parties and then suddenly was supported everywhere. And then, like, now if you build a library, why wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly. It sounds like incredible bang for the yeah. buck. Are there tutorials or something? Uh, so, let's say I, by chance, would build a uh, library in Elixir. Is there a tutorial for how to enable um, telemetry in that library? So, it, you can go to the tele so telemetry itself. The telemetry support itself is the library. It's not built in. Yeah. So, you can just go to those docs and see a ton of examples. And there's... So initially there was a telemetry start and a telemetry stop that sort of indicated that helped you measure how much time something took and that sort of thing. Yep. Um, so you could enter and exit events and stuff or at least send different events. Yeah. Now there's also just telemetry span and you pass that a callback and anything you put inside that callback will be the thing measured. Oh, nice. Which which makes it super convenient to implement telemetry. Yep. So yeah, you, you just go to that documentation and it covers how to do it in Elixir, it covers how to do it in Erlang. Cool. Yeah, and I think that's the sort of raw material you typically need for for good observability. It's just like you need some way to get these events. And if no one has planned for how to provide these events to you, you will have to work around it. And if you have to work around it, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, especially in a in a language which doesn't take kindly to monkey patching. So hypothetically, you could very very much monkey patch elixir because you can like uh, the beam allows you to ship new code at any time. <laughs> uh, so you can keep just rewriting the whole thing at runtime. But that's that's not the best way to do it. So providing these events means that you can do it in a nicer way and in a good and performant way. And the implementation of this whole thing is stupidly simple. It doesn't try to solve sort of shipping the data anywhere for you so the the thing you do when you want to access these events is that you say okay i want to attach a handler for these events and you explicitly state which events from a list yep. 
uh, or from from whatever libraries and uh, events names uh, that library exposes. Yep. It's like yeah, okay, from Ecto, which is the database library, I want I want the start of a query and the end of a query, or I only want query errors hmm? uh, and that sort of thing. And then your function that you provide will be called with that information uh, synchronously. So uh-huh. if you want to handle, if you want to do a lot of processing to whatever you're receiving there, you should pass that off to another process quickly because, because the library will not be, or the telemetry thing will not be moving on before you're done, which is like, okay, we, we didn't decide that all of these events will be turned into messages inside your system, which would have been the sort of most expected approach, I think, for, for doing this kind of handlers and dispatch in Elixir and Erlang. Because there's message passing. Of course, you want to use the actor model and your message passing. Well, <laughs> if you use it for everything, it becomes very, very slow. Yeah, you get a lot, a lot, a lot of messages, especially if if you're doing this for every, for example, request in a web system. You want to be fairly sure that these are the logs you actually want to handle. Yep. And maybe you have some strategy to make it faster than what message passing would offer, for example. Mm. So I think they've decided to not have, they don't, do an opinionated approach where we we send them off in this way but rather you as the caller of this api you as the user of this api you figure out how to handle these just be aware that like we're waiting (laughs) (laughs) that's and i think that's a, a good pragmatic approach but it was also counterintuitive to me yeah i've uh run into that approach in a couple of places when uh, looking into Erlang. For instance, with um, there's a database, I always forget what the name is. It's implemented in Erlang by a UK-based company. Are you thinking about... Uh, wait, uh, so not inside Erlang, you're not thinking about Amnesia or Eths or anything? Nah, it's implemented in Erlang, but not inside Erlang. <laughs> Is it React or is it Couch? I think it's React. It's a uh, Basho was the company that used to do it. I don't exactly. think they're around anymore. Oh, huh. That's what happens when I'm living under a rock for a couple of years. Anyway, uh, one of the more interesting ways to handle things in that database is when you. Uh, it's I think it's a key value store. Uh, so when you say, I want all values with this key, uh, then you can get back a result that says, well, uh, something happened and you will have to fix the merge conflict. Um, because for some reason they couldn't update the value uh, in a deterministic way or in a good way. I wonder, I think Couch does something like that. Ah, oh, nice. Uh, so then they they figured that the one who is the best at figuring out 
which value to save and which value to throw away or maybe combine is the developer of the application because they have the hopefully they have the domain knowledge yeah um so i like that approach yeah um i know chris keithley of elixir outlaw fame often talks about handling things at a call site yep and i for a while i've felt like but that's annoying and it's it gets weird and why though can't yes it's can't annoying you just <laughs> let the library do something smart but in many 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 cases there's nothing really smart the library can do beyond just telling you what what went wrong <laughs> in in a very yeah. clear and useful way and that's that's sort of when when i think a lot of architecture layering can also break down yes when when you need to cut through the layers to actually to actually act correctly yeah and then you start to i uh, so he's very keen on building so when he's talking about uh, building database queries and and all of that stuff he, i feel like he wants to do the database query straight away in the well in the controller usually for for a web project rather than having some intermediate layers that just provide like the domain the the domain model and uh, prop, like a proper nice api and a limited set of errors yeah because i think there's 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 stuff he feels gets lost in those layers yeah i just just by hearing this i think there are two things to it um let's see if i <laughs> can come up with more um the first one is isn't the database a model of the domain already sometimes or it doesn't have to be but but in an ideal case uh, and also um, i just love to remove as much code as i can uh, if if i can just do one query in one place and be done with it very good uh, then i'm happy uh, i don't have to model everything for a thousand layers uh, it's the less code the better yeah and the more modeling the more code so yeah um on the other hand i'm i'll probably run into a situation soon because i've said this now so i'm jinxing this where it would have been very useful to do that modeling and to do all that there are some design patterns that are used for like making components of programs or parts of programs more self-contained adding proper borders to them and stuff um, i've forgotten all the names so hexagonal pattern or something i think it's been used in ruby on rails yeah um and it's it seems kind of nice but i would never use it because i'm slightly or i'm much too lazy yeah so that's that's sort of where i'm i'm oscillating between two two different ideas i think with 
I see what people are doing with contexts in Phoenix and like, okay, but here's your domain layer, which you, and inside your domain layer, you have your database layer, which, and other stuff, which talks to whatever systems it needs to talk to, to do, to do the business. And then you have the web layer, which talks to the main layer. But the web layer is mostly concerned with sort of deserializing, checking inputs, and uh, serializing a response. And if you add a new sort of interface of some sort, where let's say you have a CLI tool as well that needs to operate, that needs to do the same sort of domain work that CLI tool or that admin tool or whatever could come in through a different entrance and still call on all of the same domain logic. That's powerful. That's useful. Yes. But it also... It also has to then... So that that means you lose a lot of capacity to, for example wield SQL in a useful way in your controller. Yep. And to compose SQL queries. They can be composed. Yeah, typically like this kind of domain functionality is not very composable. And it it Exactly. Because it's a lot of work to build something that that flexible. Yeah. And the ORMs or whatever stuff you're using um they are those abstractions are so leaky <laughs> that you need to be careful with them by not wrapping them in stuff just let them leak it's like the blackbird yeah and common practice for elixir and phoenix seems to be that you still want to work with sort of ecto change sets which po- which sort of touch on the database and it's not uncommon to sort of return ecto schema structs, which are part of your sort of database concerns and modeling there. Hmm. So you're sort of leaking your ecto API from your domain model yeah so it's not like it's very pure and i don't think the solution is like oh no we need to purge that let's let's remove all those ecto schema structs and uh, and have what they have in sort of a really enterprisey good solid dot net or java thing where we have data transfer objects wow where it's like oh so we have a user model mm-hmm. that we use to talk to the database. When, but whenever we're sending that elsewhere, it shouldn't know anything about the database. So we're turning it into a DTO, a data transfer object. Wow. Which is, which is like a very, very slim representation of, of the thing. And I think the equivalent in Elixir would be, okay, but take this take the schema struct and uh, turn it into a map by just stripping out the struct data. Uh, sure. And suddenly you would have a map which is slightly a slightly more flexible and slightly less knowledgeable data structure. But a map is a map could be anything. Yeah. While a struct is something. It has a name and things like that. And some of this I guess 
is an attempt to say, but we don't have to talk to Ecto. We could be talking to anything. Yeah, but you want to talk to Ecto because Ecto is such a nice system to talk to. It has candy. Yeah. So Ecto can give you more specific errors. And that's why we use part of it. And it allows you to ask flexible questions. But if we keep hiding those flexible questions behind dumber APIs, are we using ecto sensibly then that's a hard question yeah it's so i can definitely see you going in the other direction there and like no i so he he's definitely stated that he be, he doesn't mind large functions and he tends to create fat controllers with with a lot of code in them that do a lot of things and i can see how that would be useful because then that's like that's where the code is that's where it's doing the thing you don't have to look at 10 different places so you don't have to follow sort of the thread through the layers yep. to figure out what's going on ecto is a well-known api that it, essentially any elixir programmer needs to know yes just like if you're doing django you know how to talk to the orm orm yep so Trying to abstract that away would be very counterproductive, probably, especially in Django's case. Yeah, people have tried it anyway. But yeah, so and it's also a if I add another API to something or another abstraction that wraps the query set API, then the next person who reads the code needs to learn my take on the situation instead of just using the knowledge they already have. And when they look inside those functions, they will see like, oh, it's built on top of query sets. Yep. Then I should maybe be able to do this. And then it's like, no, oh no, they're not exposing this feature of query sets, but how could I pass in this so I can? Yeah. And then it's like, you're reinventing query set. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which is sort of what, what ends up happening. Like, Oh, now we need this feature vector. So now we have to expose that through our outer layers and and sort of and it's all horrible. Uh, sort of start growing our API until it has feature parity with Ecto at some point. Yes. But there's also useful cases where putting those boundaries up and saying, no, you go through this because then we can enforce that is very useful because maybe you always want to make sure that this particular query, like you never query this table without also checking that you have proper access to it. Yeah. Or you always apply sort of a tendency key. You always check that you're filtering on customer ID Exactly, doing some some sharding or something. Yeah. That always needs to be done. Thankfully, there are often other ways of doing that where you can where you can build some uh, some nice hooks into into the ecto tooling where where you can just have it throw an error if you're ever making one of those queries without that. 
Cool. And then you wouldn't do it twice. Yeah. Uh, I. Th- yeah, that's good. Uh, I think I I would put that kind of stuff into the database, if I was allowed to. That's not always oh, the case. Oh, like uh, prepared statements and stuff. Uh, rather triggers and um, using the schemas of uh, Postgres to uh, be very careful with what things are exposed and use views to make sure that only the correct stuff is exposed yeah. uh, and also functions like you can get you can get back your table uh, as a return value if you give the function the correct arguments maybe that's a roundabout way to do the same thing and it shouldn't be done that way hmm. well uh, maybe we'll have to do an experiment on that yeah it seems like you're uh, seems like you're building a lot of domain there in your database but uh, just a bit I like to have the domain in my database <laughs> Which might be a good place to put it. I don't know. I haven't done much yeah. uh, SQL-centric building. It's sweet. Um, it's also kind of <laughs> frustrating because SQL is an old yeah. language, a strange. But since you're learning Elixir now, uh, you should be uh, taking a look at observability, a live dashboard. Yep. Maybe, Definitely. Maybe even comics. Oh yes. <laughs>